We have the pleasure today of the company of Stuart Whitby. I remember what you said to us. You were like, always like, oh, can we have a chat? And I'll never forget those lines. I did 17 big ones for murder. How do you rehabilitate yourself? How do you find any hope in a day when you're viewed as a predator or a dangerous person by those around you? you got to deal with all this stuff and um, you go within, you start soul searching. Great Butt Radio, coming through on your wireless. <laughs> Um, well, let's intro this podcast, Derek. Yeah, let's intro oh, this I'm podcast. I'm going to turn this heater off. It is hot before, in here. Before we all have a cry in here together, because there's probably a number of reasons why the bloke sitting in front of us could have had a few cries, oh, yeah. um, and it would be pretty understandable. But um, I think we're about to find out a hell of a lot more about that and this legend, because we are we have the pleasure today of the company of Stuart Whitby. Now, Stu is a legend that we met um, out on a site visit um, at a point in time, Ed and I, and um, had a very quite a powerful um, connection, I would say. Um, we were compelled to uh, to get Stu in and see if he wanted to share his story because it was one hell of a unique scenario. But um, Stuart, welcome to the to the podcast studio, mate. Yeah, thank you, Dan and Ed. I'm glad to be here and it, it's warm in here. And it's, <laughs> I've turned it's the heater off morning. now. Thanks yeah. for the coffee as well. And um, yeah, looking forward to this. It's warm in here. There's a bit of warm energy. You're wearing your warm coloured faff and you got it all going on, mate. Yeah, yeah. As soon as I got back to Brisbane, um, I had my three shirts there and I ripped them straight out. And I threw this one on and I like it and I'm going to get some more definitely. <laughs> I awesome, threw this mate. one on and I like it. <laughs> Fuck, that's, we'll have to get you to do a product review. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I definitely do need to get some uh, more winter woolies, as they say, the hoodies and yeah, you know, yeah, more caps. Sure. <laughs> yeah, mate, for sure. No, I really appreciate you, you coming in. Um, yeah, Dan and I, yeah, we've, we've reflected a lot on that chat we had that day to like you and the, and the rest of the staff where you work and it was um, – because like I remember when I was talking, because Dan always starts us off, you know, gets halfway through, and then I sort of do the last bit. And um, I can remember looking around. I'm like often scanning the, you know, the room to see like who's interested, in who who's gives looking, a shit, who gives yeah. a fuck. Because it's often there's ninety percent don't give a fuck, which is understandable because the stuff we're talking about, you know, yeah. not everyone's up for yet, yeah. which is cool. But you know, when I was talking, I just remember seeing like I locked eyes with you as I was talking. And I was like, "Fuck!" You were just like looking like straight, th- like straight through me. I was like. This guy is so engaged. I was like, this is incredible. Like, yeah. what I'm saying here, I was like, this guy really gives a fuck. Yeah. And then after, when we finished and we handed those few things away, um, yeah, like, you just came up to us and just, like, dropped your guard. And, yeah, the way you sort of... It was almost like uh, it was almost like an emergency situation, kind of, where you, like... Because I remember what you said to us. You were like, always like... Can we have a chat? I need to get something off my chest. And it was sort of like looking around. There are other people around there. I was like, well, is this a safe space? Yep, yep. Yeah. And it just poured out of you. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget those lines. I did 17 big ones for murder. Yeah. And I know Ed and I both looked at each other because we've had some conversations during the time of this business. But none, no one's come up to us with anything like that. Yeah. And... We, I, I remember we didn't even talk. I think it must have been about 15, 15 minutes and you were just pouring your heart out. And it was like a physical expulsion of like you needed to get it off your chest. You hadn't necessarily had anyone to talk to about that stuff or felt comfortable to do it. And that was an opportunity and we felt that. Mm. And we were touched. It changed us. It really mm. did, didn't it? Yeah. It was, it was a powerful, powerful moment. 
Was it like was it that for you? Because it might have just been us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> listening to what you were talking about was resonating with me, and um, you know, being on shutdowns or remote work like that, um, it can take a toll on you, an emotional toll. And we'd already been through a bit, um, as you were saying. You know, ninety percent of the people there were disengaged but the 10 percent that were engaged um i was one of those and w- i was right into it um i believe about helping people and i know that we all go through a bit of a grind not only in the workplace but in life so you had me listening in uh, my journey through the workforce has been um hasn't been an easy one so um i'd seen your shirts around um i didn't really know what they were about i thought they were that big companies sort of pro, okay. pro, program, yep. but when I saw that it was you two, I'm like, wow, this is even, it's even better. This <laughs> this makes it better for me to see that. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, to have a chance to just talk to you after you explain to me what you are about and what drives you, I just thought, yeah, I need to tell these people this because I hadn't told anyone else out there at that point about that and I'd been bottling a lot of stuff up through the grind of the job and um, I just felt that I just needed to let off some steam. Absolutely. And I'm, I remember Dan and I, like, after you sort of finished telling us for like 10 or 15 minutes all this stuff, Dan and I just looked at each other and looked at you and said, fuck, do you want to come on the podcast? Because this is exactly the conversations that we want to have, um, not just amongst ourselves, but among our community, you know, and bring these barriers down and allow people to show vulnerability. And I mean, there's a hell of a lot we're going to talk about today. On a lot of different things, you know, that I don't think a lot of people quite understand. And I've even had insights this morning just chatting to you before the podcast, stuff that I never even thought about. Yeah, we've, you know, learned about bro- we've learned about bronzing up. <laughs> about bronzing up as well. We will talk about that. Um, yeah. to, to paint the picture, though, before we went to that particular site, we, I mean, it's well known. Nearly missed our fucking flight. Yeah, we did nearly miss our fucking flight that day. <laughs> we were, we were a matter of 30 seconds it was we were running down the down the ramp with no shoes on. We had our shoes in our hands because we. Oh man! I anyway. it. it was oh. a nightmare. But um, <laughs> but we've obviously done a whole lot of you know one of our programs. We work with Work Restart, who are a social enterprise, and they um, basically upskill inmates. Um, you know, in prisons outside of Brisbane. Um, you know, with skills and and um, and that sort of stuff. And we use uh, you know we up we upcycle shirts that we can't sell into products. You know, with the inmates in Braille and Prison, we've been in there. And so this this prison program has been something that we've been really proud of, um, and we've seen the impact of it, and we've had conversations with with um, with inmates about you know the positive nature of of doing of the, doing those programs, and we took up a whole lot of those products to the place where we met you, because we realised that that story kind of connected with people as well, and obviously that day it specifically connected with you because you've spent seventeen years in prison. Yes. And you've seen it all. Yep. And I suppose that exact scenario there with those stories and those products and what we were doing on that side of things, that probably, aside from the mental health stuff, which you were probably already connected with, I think that might have just got it over the line for you. Yeah, well, I once worked in a tailor's shop for a short period of time in prison and I know the environment and I could imagine those people in there making that stuff and, you know, how happy they'd be on their sewing machines and and doing all this stuff and knowing that it's going for a good cause and that would bring, you know, great meaning and purpose to them and to their day. And that's what you're trying to do to get through one day. And, oh. um, and you're trying to give and get out of yourself just to get you through that one day. So programs like that are really priceless. And, you know, 
I suppose unless they come and tell you, we'll never really know what it means to each individual, but for them to be able to do something good in an environment that is harsh, that is, you know, punishing in a way, but um, that brings the um, restorative justice and reintegration aspect of it in there and that opens the door for light and for hope mm. and the good stuff that people in there are not thinking about, you know, maybe self-love, you know, it's a harsh environment, train hard, you know, eat fast, sleep, boom, boom, day, day, night, day, night, week after week, year after year, year after year. You know, it's like you don't get a chance to breathe, but when you do good things, you know, it brings that light, that love into your heart, and that's what you need. That's going to that's gonna carry you across the finish line. Yeah. That's awesome. And, I mean, I know Ed and I certainly, from our, from our time going into a Braillant prison, Jeez, right, it was an eye-opening experience. Right inside, like not in the <coughs> visitor's room, like in the guts of it, which not yep. many uh, civilians get to do uh, because, you know, you just don't. Like it's the visitor's room or nothing. And to, to, to be in that world for a short period of time and to see it – was yeah, it was incredibly eye-opening, and you can see the yeah, the benefit and the and you know how much of an opportunity it is for these guys, and how much it helps them get through a day. It also and changes your perspective on it changes your perspective what those people are going through on in there. Yeah. It changes your perspective, and we say this a bit. When it changes your perspective when you go inside a prison into a sewing center, having never been into a prison before, a high security prison, and there's scissors and sharp fucking shit everywhere and you know you have those first thoughts you're like fuck yeah. i'm in here but you quickly realize that no one no one gives a shit about doing any extra time for a couple of fucking dickheads like yeah like us. some stupid looking shit yeah, as soon as you open your mouth and start to talk and you, you know to, to these people you realize oh there's a human element here in fact it's all human and people are just you know in here most of the time out of hard luck situations um, and they've made mistakes and mistakes happen in life. And well, it, allowed, it allowed us to, yeah, really show some, well, understand and give some empathy to those people because majority of the time prisons are like, oh, fuck, they're all people that have, that have fucked up and just keep them there, you know what I mean? Fucking lock them up, no, you know? But when we, we were walking down like the corridors and they must deliberately do it, but like it's obviously all concrete and steel, but then they had... All the walkways and stuff were all um, was all meshed off, but then outside and between all the concrete and the steel was this beautifully manicured grass, like fucking some of the nicest grass I've seen, like as good as Parliament House grass. Lawn. You know what I mean? Lawn, lovely Lawn. lawns. And uh, it was just such a weird thing to see, like the people that, like the the, the inmates that weren't working in like the work restart program or Green Fox doing graphic design or whatever. They were just in a six by six concrete outside area, just walking up and back, touching the side, like the the walls of the yard, and just walking up and back. Yeah. I said to Helen, "I was like, what are they doing?" She's like, "Oh, they'll just do that all day." Yeah, because there's nothing else to do. Because if you're not doing the work restart program, you're just sitting around waiting for, waiting for time to go by, which is like, it's very, very, very hard for me to still comprehend that, even by seeing it let alone explaining that to someone else and being like, that's what's going on. You know, that's a hard reality. Oh, yeah. That's a fucking hard, that's a tough, tough life. And to think that we're trying to, well, I mean, I don't even know, but like you look at the prison system, it's like I look at it and I'm like, we're trying to fix these people, right? Like we want them to come out and be better. But fuck, looking at that, it's like that doesn't, that's not helping anyone. That's just going to build more hate and resistance to, to conforming. Yeah. You know what I mean? That, 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 that's not sending people in the right direction. 
in my opinion, I don't know. Mate, it's it's certainly an eye opener. It <laughs> absolutely is. Um, I think uh, I think we we should hear from the man himself. Yeah, we should. We've just been talking the whole time, mate. This guy's got you know Plenty. how many how many years in, in inside did you do, Sue? Um, nearly seventeen. Nearly years. seventeen. Yeah. Wow. I mean, why don't you just why don't we just go from the start? Why don't you just take us to the start? Are you cool? Yeah. 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 Well. Um, yeah, I was. Um, I, I think the whole story started in Port Kembla. I believe that it did. I've spoken to my younger brother and my older brother when he was alive and we believe and know that to be true because growing up, we were just like your average kids growing up in southwest Sydney out in the bush, but we knew that our grandfather was someone important in the painters and dockers back in the day. Um, we know he was associated with the mafia and they went to his funeral. and Painters and dockers explained to me, I don't ex- exactly know... Are they like a biking gang? No, they're a, they were a waterfront unit um, union. They're no more. Right they up. were shut down or morphed into something else. And um, they basically controlled the waterfront. Okay. And, and that's all I really know is that whatever came in or whatever went out, it didn't come in or go out without their say-so. And I know that my grandfather was driven around by bodyguards, armed guards. And, wow. And... Um, and my dad said that if the police accidentally pulled him over, they said, sorry, Mr. Whitby, and sent him on his way. And he was tied in with the mafia and everything. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 Down in, in, what, is this in Melbourne or uh, Sydney? In, in Wollongong, yeah, yeah south okay. of Sydney, Port Kembla. Yeah, right. Yeah, wow, yeah, okay. And I, I was born in Wollongong in 73 and um, lived in Reservoir Road at Port Kembla. So that was my first home there till I was about five. And what did you? What were your parents? What What, what did they do? Uh, my dad was a painter and docker. Okay. So on my birth certificate, my dad was eighteen years old. He was a painter and docker, and my mum was a housewife. Okay. Yeah. And you you were saying you know before we started the podcast that you know it was a fair bit of you know family domestic violence growing up, um, and your father was quite a hard yeah. hard man. Walk us walk us through that. What what did that What did the home life look like for you growing up? Look. I, um, my dad was an underground miner after he left the, the docks and um, he played country football and was captain coach and St George um, Dragons chased him for 10 years straight but he never went to the Dragons. He played rugby league against Great Britain and France for Southern Division which is the old New South Wales country. So he knew all the NRL players like from that era. Um, his friends from school, some of them played for the, in the NRL and um, he was just a very... I suppose he liked to drink, he trained hard, he worked hard, and he was just, um, you know, like, he was, he just, um, what's the word for it? He was very sterile, didn't show any emotion, really. Um, but if my brothers or I slipped up, we'd caught one hell of a beating. Like, it would come out there. And what's a slip up? Um, a slip up would be something different like wrestling with your brother or fighting with your cousin or something like this, you know, just, um, nothing, nothing too over the top for the general family. But for us, you know, I remember I was having probably my seventh birthday and had 10 mates over and he was coming back from work one day and I I thought, my dad's here, run, hide. And we're all like running. My friends are like, why do we have to hide? I'm like, that's how it was. You know, he was hard to be around. Wow. That's that's tough. And what sort of beatings are we talking? Um, 
Yeah, they weren't just your average, um, you know, jug cord across the back legs. They were knees and punches and, you know, he took a block of wood to my younger brother's backside and leg and, you know, sent my older brother to school with black eyes at primary school and, oh, wow, you know, just stuff like this, you know, and, um, yeah, it's not good, it's not right, but that's how it was. And was your mother around at this, like, this time? Yeah, she, yeah, that's just... That's just a part of it. That was normal mm. in our household. How much of an impact do you reckon that's had on who or who you were, you know, and who you've become? Like how much of an impact that early childhood and those, you know, those situations have had on you as a person? Oh, massive because as a young person I was very vibrant. Like I'm getting back to my, you know, before. Yeah. And um, I was a very optimistic and I'd always help people, I mean, even as pr- in primary school, like I think like first class and second class, I was a monitor and I used to help my classmates and stuff. So I was looking out for those guys at a very young age. And um, I believe that um, self-esteem and things like that were basically beaten down, if not completely out of me at a very young age. So yeah. as I said, by the time I was about probably 15, 16, I was pretty well burnt out, washed up. Yeah, you were saying that you're doing yeah, obviously a lot more. You were, you had to grow up quick, I suppose, would be yeah. you know, sort of term for it. Yeah. So when you're 15, 16, and so like the like the big event, like the big you know turning point that happened in your life, you're about 20, 22, 23. So walk us through those years up until that event. Like what what did it look like? You know, did you finish school? Did you finish high school? Um, I left school um, in year nine and went to start a bricklaying apprenticeship, but didn't go too far. With that. Oh, um, fuck, mate. Good yeah. one to stop. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Jeez, that's a tough gig. Fuck, bricklaying. Fuck, it's hard. Yeah, so I got to start with my um, my uncle's wife's dad. He was a grenadier guard at Buckingham Palace back in the day. Um, won apparently the Golden Trow in the UK. And he was his bl- bricklaying, blocklaying company was um, building the Hard Rock Cafe in Sydney. So that's where I was building the Hard Rock Cafe, laying quarter blocks in door jams, door frames, carrying three, four bags of concrete as a 15-year-old, lugging them around, and that was my introduction to the workforce. That's a that's probably as, as hard an introduction you could have as a 15-year-old in that, that trade. Like, that's full-on, isn't it? Yeah, and I was working building the Hard Rock Cafe, and at lunch I used to buy a sandwich and climb up to the very top, and it was partially built, and there was like a quarter of a wall, and I'd sit right up the top and overlook as much as the perch yourself up there yeah look over the city and wonder you know dream i suppose what the future might bring yeah wow and so how long did you how long did you do do that for that was only for a couple of months and um he wasn't stable the person that i was working for and um i don't even think he ended up completing that he might have been kicked off or something so from there i left there and went to build coal trailers welding yeah, okay, fabricating. Yeah, fabricating. So during this time, like during that middle period, you know, when you've sort of, you've left school grade nine, like that's a, yeah, you know, how many people leaving grade nine now? Like that's a big thing to do. Yep. Um, and then up until, yeah, you were 22, 23, who, who, who were the people that you were like looking up to or the people you were surrounding yourself with? Because obviously your father, you're obviously distancing yourself yeah. from the family life. Like who were the people you were hanging around with? Well, I was basically hanging around friends from school and – um some of them had tattoo studios were apprentice tattooists and stuff and um no no one was like major in into anything bad or anything they were just um just working spending the working week and on weekends drinking 
cartons of beer, smoking marijuana and hanging around bonfires or fire pits and having barbecues. That was that was probably it. So pretty innocent fun, really. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Standard behaviour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing, nothing hasn't happened before. Um, yeah, okay. And so I suppose want to, yeah, get close to the event and walk through, like, your, your time away because, you know, the event happened um, and you, you spoke about it off air before. But, like, we don't have to go into the details of it, but, like, the, the night that that happened and once it was – like, once it had happened, it was over – what was what? Walk us through that. Like once you know it, it had taken place. What was what was the next thing? Like that next sort of half an hour. What did that look like? Um, after it had happened, um, I fled the scene, and I was walking around, and it was early morning hours before the sun came up, and um, a realization that I'd acted in a very violent way had overcome me like I'd taken my place to a a place where I'd heard about um, and um, I'd seen some wild stuff but to actually be in that situation was um, it was horrifying it was horrifying and I don't know why I thought this but as I was walking I felt like I could see myself from like I don't know a hundred kilometers up into the sky, and saw myself as just this insignificant person walking around, like on a monopoly board type of thing. And then I was like, you know, just in an instant, I was thinking like this: like, what have I done? Like, what have you done? And um, how did I get to that point? And um, yeah, there was a bit of well, there was a lot of emotion there. And um, yeah, I went and handed myself in. I didn't know what the full, what the outcome would be. Um, and um, then I was eventually met by the police, the detectives and arrested and um, reality of the whole thing. Yeah. To sink in. When, when, you, when you were walking around and you said, I suppose that's a bit of a, like a, almost like an out-of-body experience maybe, um, did you realise at that point the gravity of what you'd done? And like yeah. that, you know, that, that someone's life has been ended yeah well i didn't think that that might have been the case outright but i kind of i felt that it was the case but Mm. i was hoping that it wasn't trying to believe the best in a situation like that and um just knowing that your future's gone there's going to be consequences here that are far Mm. Was it just a hollow feeling? Was it just like a numbness? Was it like, was it just, yeah, like I'm trying to figure out like, because obviously it would have been like, you would have been so, like. You'd go through every range of emotion. Yeah, you'd have the shock, like, you'd have the fear, you'd be scared, you'd be fuck, fucking angry. Shaking. Yeah, you'd be yeah, ha- was, absolutely everything. It was all it was all coming out and, um, you know, I broke down a few times and um, then – then just before the detectives come to collect me, um, I just basically emotionally collapsed, and I suppose all all the trauma, I suppose everything that I'd experienced into my in my life up to that stage actually came out. It's just a real pity and a shame that it couldn't come out somewhere else. And is that that event didn't have to occur? Is that how you feel about? It that maybe like after that moment in time, a lifetime of twenty two years of life 
that you know had been building up behind you had just kind of almost unraveled or spewed yeah. out. Like, yeah, I do, I, I do agree that um, with that, and um, I, I know myself well these days, and I know that that is the case. I know that that's how it was with me. It wasn't just, um, oh, you know, this happened in this instant or that happened in that instant because I, I know for the most part I'm a generally kind, caring, good person. I mean, I'm bound by morals and ethics like all of us. We all have that inbuilt and ingrained into us. But I do know that I actually dumped, like fully dumped my whole life out emotionally. And so what year was this? 1997. 1997. Um. Fuck, that's a long time ago, isn't it? Yeah, it is a yes. It is a fucking long time ago. And I think about that conversation that we I was had. F- when, four. But that's and that's <laughs> and that's where I and that's where I went to, because that's immediately where I went to was like, wow, what was I doing in nineteen ninety seven? Okay, yeah. I was in grade two at school. Yeah. Fucking crapping my dax. You know what I mean? <laughs> like and then and then in that time, what had my life looked like? What have yeah. I done? And then I compare that to that amount of time where you know, your life has just not stopped, but taken a fucking pretty significant change of direction and the stuff that you must have been through, you know, in that time and the process, the transformation or the, you know, the the, the self-discovery and the stuff that you would go through, but also the the pain and the anguish and the, and the all the emotions that you must feel. And the regret. Oh, yeah, the regret. And, um, you know, like there's some things you can fix, like if, you decided today that I'd done the wrong thing there. Let's make amends. Let's throw 110% effort in there. Let's even get our friends to help us. Yeah, let's get a project going. Let's fix that. Some things can't be fixed. And then you have to deal with that. And and how hard is it to deal with something like that? Like, how often does it play back in your mind? Or when you're incarcerated, like, playing back in your mind, being like, fuck, if only I just did this. Or if I, if I, if I hadn't stayed there. Or if I had, you know, like, how much did that play back on your mind? Oh, so much, like every day. It was like if I could go back and talk to a younger Stuart or if I could go back and just go, why didn't you just walk in there and say I needed help? Why? And and that's... that's I, I can't tell why, why I was so, I suppose, emotionally isolated, but that's where I wound up in. Yeah, I was moving around, but the communication basically was shutting down. And how, and how much do you... Do you, how hard do you need to work to not let that consume you? Because oh, that could easily just eat you up and oh, that would just fuck you for the rest of your days. Like how hard was it for, for that for you to work past that consuming you? Oh, look, I'll be honest, it near killed me a hundred times. It is that much of a big thing. When you have done damage and you can't fix it, when you've caused grief and you can't comfort it, it doesn't get more serious than that. And then you've got to deal with that within yourself because – you're alive, you're going forward, or you hope to go forward, how do you rehabilitate yourself? How do you find any hope in a day to get through a day when you're not getting visits, when it seems that no one around you cares, when you're just another person that done this, when you're viewed as a predator or a dangerous person by those around you who don't want to get close to you because, look, if we upset this guy, we could be... The next. Yeah. The next. You know, you've got to deal with all this stuff and... um. I suppose you just you go within and you start soul searching. How 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 much do you reckon you change? Like if so, not um ninety seven it happened, and like obviously you were, you would have been put away until your trial and everything. Yeah. Um, when you you know were found guilty and went to prison full time, you're like right, this I'm in here now. 
how much did your mindset change or, you know, your demeanour change from when you first started to when you came out, you know, nearly 17 years later? Like, were you an angry, fuck the world person when you went in or were you, I've made a massive mistake, how can I fix this? Look, I was, I was the first part there. I, I knew I'd made a massive mistake and I was looking at how I'm going to fix this and I was also asking myself, do, do, do I deserve a chance? Do I deserve to be fixed? Am I capable of it? Am I damaged goods? Is there something wrong with me? You know, all these things were running through my mind. So I basically had myself under a period of review and assessment till I could understand where I was going. And um, and that, that it's crazy to look back on how I was reviewing myself, but that's basically how it was. And because you can't really, like, you talk about, like, how hard it is in there for people to show emotion and vulnerability because obviously it's like a, fuck, lack of a better term, like dog-eat-dog type world in there. It's like a pack mentality and if you're the weak link, then you're fucking going to be in trouble, right? So how hard is it to mask your emotions but also try and find some inner soul searching to be able to show emotions in the right areas, you know what I mean, as you're progressing your way through your, your time so you can actually make some positive changes within yourself? Like how hard is it to do be those two people at pretty much the same time? Well, for me, I had a couple of people come up to me early on in the piece, um, people that had been in a long time, and one of them came up to me and he basically said, well, the good part is is that you're young and um, I don't think you're going to do this amount of time easy if indeed you will ever progress further. But um, I believe that because of your age, there is hope, he said to me. And um, and he left it at that, and I never, ever spoke to that person again. Um, he was an old Indigenous man, and um, he said that to me. And it stuck with me the whole time. I held on to that. So, Wow, that's fucking cool, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and he would never know. No, he came up to me and he said those words to me and there was nobody else saying anything to me. They wouldn't come near me and he just approached me in the middle of the unit. I'll just put that on. Yeah, he just came to me in the middle of the unit and just looked me in the eyes. He was like, you know, a foot across from me and he says, you know, um, the good part of all this is that you're young. And he said, I don't think you'll do this easy. But he said, you know, I think you'll come out and um, that was heavy. So... Let's talk about the time because obviously, yeah. As what Ed was said, your sorry? What were you sentenced to time yeah, wise? Yeah. Um, I was sentenced to um, thirteen years um, parole with um, around seventeen years on the top. So I did two years past my parole date, okay. which is nobody really gets it first go. They want to see how you react. They, you know what I mean. It's a process, and they do not want to release people. That are going to cause any more. Mm. They're testing you as yeah, well. Like yeah. they want to, yeah. Yeah, sure. they're testing. So you've gone, so 97, obviously, you know, you've obviously committed a crime, you've been locked up, and then the time between getting locked up on the, the morning after to when your trial was, how long was that? I was about two years. Two years. So it's sort of two years, you're kind of, in that two-year period, that initial two-year period before your trial, I'm sure there's a whole lot of, that for two years you would have been like, what the fuck is going to happen to me? Do yeah. you know what I mean? In that time you would have been like, because I'm sure there's lawyers, there's um, dates that are thrown out, you know, for certain things to happen. Shit gets delayed and pushed back. Two years of just, wow, not, not really knowing what your future holds. 
Yeah, well, I um, it was a very difficult two years, and um, I wound I wound up on observations a couple of times where um, people, um, guards, counselors would um, because a lot of people were, in hindsight now looking after me, even though I mightn't have thought it at the time, they definitely were, and because uh, I was young, and um, they would um call counsellors down and they just regularly had someone coming to speak to me and um, that actually really helped me and I had chaplains regularly coming to see me um, and that's what got me through that period of time but um, a number of times through that first two years waiting period um, I'd be taken out of my unit and put under observation for 24 hours for a couple of days just to make sure that I didn't do anything to myself. Okay. So is that what when is that observation they mean that you're at risk of self harm? Absolutely. Okay, right. And did you feel that? Did you feel that you were a risk to yourself? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a challenge I faced daily. Yep. And um, to see what was going on around me as well, um, and to be in an environment like that, um, where that thing is happening a lot, um, it was it was very difficult. What kept what kept you alive? Do you reckon? That's the funniest thing. Um, well, it's not funny, but it is a funny <laughs> thing because um, I don't know because, you know, for a period of time all hope was completely lost and I was just alive, eating food, um, playing some touch football. Um, yeah, well, I suppose just looking to the next visit from a counsellor or a chaplain kept me alive and i guess when you say that it felt like no one was there for you no one was looking out for you but in hindsight maybe they were i suppose there's that element with being in prison where no one wants to be seen as being favored or no one sort of wants to be seen favoring anyone else because that can have consequences in its own right inside is that is that right absolutely because um oh there there definitely was occasions where it looked like i was being favored and I absolutely was. I was being looked after. Mm. And is that a bad thing to happen? As in, obviously it's good for you, but bad in regards to... Oh, I think jealousy and (coughs) spite and just inherent nastiness um, can be jealous of somebody that looks like they're getting preferential treatment. But um, these individuals saw in me what I was starting to see in myself and they thought, we should help Stuart. He's he's got a future. He's got a chance here, and they obviously cared about human life as well. It wasn't just me as an individual; they were doing it for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so, after that two year period, then you then your trial comes up. How was that process? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had to go to court a few times, and um, it eventually came down to it. Um, I pled not guilty and went all the way, but. Uh, um, if you understand the law, um, it gets down to technicalities. And, um, yeah, because murder and manslaughter, obviously that's where the middle ground you would have been, right? Yeah, but because I, um, the individual who I was with, the young lady, I walked her to the door but didn't leave the premises. And although I was awoken at 3 a.m. in the morning and it was all, I suppose, over within about 10 minutes, they said that that was enough time for it to be premeditated. So... It was right on the cusp of um, going another way altogether. So um, there's been a lot of conversation had to me by a lot of people about that over the years. 
Um, but um, I'll accept what's happened and I'm not going to challenge it or, you know, it's just something I've got to deal with and go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So you uh, so you go through that scenario and then you're sentenced and you get your, you know, your, your time, I suppose. What happens at that point, like, for you mentally once you know what's ahead of you? Well, when I returned back from court, they grabbed me again and put me under OBS because um, they thought for sure at that point if this... This person's gonna if he's gonna take his life. It'll be now. Now will be the time, and you're 24 yeah. at this time. Yeah. So, so they um they put me away again. I think for seven days on OBS. Fuck, 24 is young. And um, and yeah, I didn't know what to think. I just knew that there was a number of years that were placed there in concrete, so to speak, that I had to deal with, and it was all it was all too much, and I couldn't even focus on the longevity of it. So. I basically just got up and dusted myself off because there was no other option but to keep living and go forward regardless. But, I mean, obviously you don't just pick yourself up and dust yourself off like, you know, the next day. Obviously there's a fair amount of time and a lot of contemplation. And what was the number? So what was the number in your head at that point in time that you had ahead of yourself in years that you had, like, accepted, you know, I've got at least this amount of time ahead of me here. Oh, I thought I had at least 15 years. 15 but, years, But yeah. I wasn't even thinking about that. I was thinking that, um, is there no life here anymore? Mm. I was thinking, is this it forever? Mm. And it was, um, yeah, I remember sleeping in my cell and just wrapped up, I suppose, like a baby, just in the fetal position there, just wrapped up and wrapped my head up and... You know, wrap the blanket around my eyes so only my nose stuck out, and just try and block that world out. Just block everything. hide away. Yeah, just hide away. In in a physical sense, um, you're cocooned, I suppose, in a cell like that, trying to block things out. But there's a whole ecosystem, if you will, or um, that's not the right word, but a whole there's a whole lot of you know people living around you and. In that environment, you've got, you know, a lot of yahooing and, you know, noise and fights and all this kind of stuff, and it's all around you. Like, you're hearing that life around you. Like, what's that like? Well, you do. You hear the screams and you hear people explode in their cells and just destroy them. Probably crying, like people just sobbing. Yeah, you do hear people sobbing, and then you hear some people laughing, and you can hear from other units like mini riots going down and all manner of drama and medical emergencies 24 hours a day, you know, people being taken to the clinic and all all aspects of that. And how far into your sentencing was, was it when your brother passed away? How I'd been in about 10 years um, okay. at the point that my brother passed away, yeah. And that you were telling us he'd, he'd gotten out of, um, was it Goulburn, did you say? He got out of Goulburn. Yeah. And he passed away within sort of 24 hours um, and you got a phone call and just run us through how that all unfolded for you. Well, I was talking to my dad on the phone and I was, you know, I knew my older brother was in prison. I'd written him a couple of letters and was hoping to help him. And, um, yeah, it's funny. I was in prison and I'm trying to help my brother who's in prison, but that's where I was at. I was just trying to help him, trying to, you know, I was worried about him. I did have a feeling that something, you know, wasn't right. And um, 
my dad said he's getting out of prison tomorrow. We're going to pick him up. And then I thought, okay. So, you know, I was excited and I went to sleep in my cell and woke up the next day and went to ring my dad up and rung my dad up. And I said, hi, dad, is Craig there? And um, he started just talking and avoiding the subject. And then he burst into tears and I just knew straight away. I had no doubt no one needed to say one word to me. And then my dad's friend took the phone over and I said, Craig, he's dead. And that guy said, yeah. And I was just standing there in an exercise yard with 50 other people just with tears streaming down my eyes and I got wild. I was furious. I was so angry. I mean, I was upset, but I was angry. What were you angry at? I was angry at because I believe that my dad and my dad's friend didn't look after him. Um, and then I found out later that they definitely didn't. I mean, my brother got out of prison and... Um, Apparently they bought him some tobacco and a bottle of alcohol and some stuff like this and apparently he'd become addicted to morphine or some other medication and I didn't know him to be an IV drug user but he needed some medication and they wouldn't get it for him. So apparently he went to some drug dealer in some caravan park to get whatever it was that he got and just the whole story with me was horrifying. And there my brother was dead. I'm so like, less than 24 hours outside of prison, overdosed. Yep, they found him on the kitchen floor at about 10am down Wollongong, frothing at the mouth and dying on the kitchen floor. Yeah. That's, that, um, yeah. and so you're, so you get that news and then obviously, understandably, you're incredibly emotional and you've got 50 other guys around you in prison and that, they're the closest people to you physically at that point in time. Like, what happens there? Well, I basically just had to wipe the tears up, keep looking at the wall um, and just remain quiet. And then I hung up and I was shaking and that's when I said I felt like my soul had been removed from me. It just was like a mortal blow had been inflicted upon me and it was I was shaken up. Like, I wasn't just emotional, I felt physically ill. And so I started walking around, some laps inside the unit and someone come up to me and said, are you okay? And I said, um, my older brother's passed away and instead of saying, oh, I'm sorry about that, they used jail slang for saying that he's dead, what is brown bread. And um, I, I swear I could have struck this bloke down. I tell you, I could have if it wasn't for the fact that I was so, I suppose, upset and not in my, you know, not feeling a hundred percent. Using the term brown bread, he's just like completely made light of off yeah. the yeah. fact. Yeah, that just nothing. You're, yeah, you've lost one of your best mates. Yeah, my brother's dead, and yeah. it's nothing to me, mate. Go tell someone else. Yeah, and, wow. and, and um, that made me that angry because I thought. And isolated, probably. Yeah, I thought, here I am in an environment like this and I cannot even share this emotion, this grief with anyone. And so that, yeah, I can't imagine what that would have been like. But that starts to tap into this idea of what emotions can you express? What can you what can you share in, 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 a, in an environment like that? You know, when something like that happens, because my image or my idea would be that there'd be a certain there'd be an element of brotherhood almost you know in in prison camaraderie where, camaraderie yeah. where we're like and there's other people who are who have lost family members and they you know out of their control you know what i mean i would have thought there'd be an element of 
sort of rallying around you, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. No, it wasn't. And, um, you know, talking about favouritism again or um, something like that, I ended up um, speaking to a counsellor and for some some strange reason I ended up talking to the general manager because they do inspections around the place, hygiene ins- inspections, like unit inspections every week. And you have to do an extra special clean and make sure everything's like polished up. And um, I ended up chatting to the general manager and um, found favour with them. Um, and they took a shine to me and it actually helped me. I started to progress. Um, a bit of a, a spotlight of attention got put on me at that point. I'd been like a grey man and visible in that 50-man unit. But at this point, I started to stand out with the way I suppose I dealt with that and I started to actually progress. And how, what what does a progression look like? You know, if you're, so this is the general manager of the prison. What prison are we talking? Uh, we're talking about Capricornia Capricornia, here. yeah, right. Where's that? Um, Rockhampton. Right. And so when you, yeah, when you find favour with the general manager of a prison, like what does that look like? Does that mean you you start to get privileges or you get, you know, what, what, yeah. Yeah, privileges come and they don't come on that general manager saying, hey, progress this person because they can't do things like that. Um, it just means that if your unit officers usually have three, if they see the general manager taking an interest in you, one of them might go, oh, I wonder what all that's about. And then they spoke to me. And then rapport just started to develop, whereas really up to that point, hadn't had a lot to do with the guards really um yeah i mean if you see the general manager everyone sort of says hello like almost saluting them you know you want to be on good terms with the general manager and also sentence management and um, your unit officers you don't want to cause them grief because that will seriously cause you grief but um yeah um just a bit of a positive sort of door opens and um and this was so about ten years in, yeah, yeah. So this is after your brother, after your brother passed away, yeah, yeah. Wow. And so, what is your? I'm going to be honest. You come across to me like um, a protector, like you've got this kind of vibe. And some of the stories that you've kind of shared with us, you seem to have that real protector nature or that sort of helper protector provider scenario do you would you agree yeah i believe so and even more so now than ever like i only seek to help other people i mean i don't even comprehend material possessions or this and that you know what i mean well i suppose your perspective completely changes yeah completely completely changes and being having gone away for that amount of time obviously things you take for granted before or that we all take for granted you don't um what what like how did you develop your personality through that time in prison you know and what were some of the experiences that kind of changed yeah, you inside you, yeah. like sh- like because you would have seen some fucking crazy shit you would have seen you know obviously violence death um i'm sure there would have also been a, a lighter side at times glimpses of of hope yeah yeah but, Talk us through that kind of stuff. Um, well, it's so funny that um, prisoners can be very funny. <laughs> like, I'm talking crazy funny because... Um, You'd need to be. Yeah, well, they've got nothing to hide. I mean, we're all basically naked before each other, even though we're wearing uniforms, you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing to hide. I mean, someone farts over there, you're going to smell it. Mm-hmm. Someone cries at night, you know the next day. Someone has a bad phone call, you know. Um 
I think that um, just silly things like we're in a we're in a unit and um, we could cook our own food. Um, this is before they took the kitchens away and have a central kitchen hub. So we're cooking our unit's food and someone started making animal noises and we're all making animal noises and this one lad made a rooster noise and he, he made this rooster crow so real that we laughed so bad. I mean, we were cramping up and had tears coming down our eyes and this one bloke <laughs> fell off a chair and the guards ran in and thought someone like had knocked Attacked him off his him, chair. Yeah. And um, just, just, just funny things like that and... You see weird things as well, or you hear weird things, and um, you laugh. You know, like <laughs> I suppose that helps get you through. Of course, it helps get you through. Yeah, but playing sport as well. Um, if you exercise or play sport, you usually find like-minded people, um, and they're they're pretty positive types. You know, like there I am serving all this time, but um, you know, people are coming in doing one week, one month, six months, twelve months, and I'm meeting these people and they're coming past me and saying g'day i'm getting to know them and they're going they're all coming in from different walks of life different experiences different trades different sporting backgrounds and i'm spending time with all these individuals and then going that in itself refreshed me um and i was always learning something new did you make this could be a weird question but did you make like lifelong friends in there that like you've that have they've come out and that you're like mates with now um Look, if there's a couple of people that I have bumped into and these people were in a similar situation than me and I wouldn't view them, I would never view, I don't view them as a prisoner or as some ex-criminal. I know these people are very trustworthy, that care about people and they're doing the best that they can. But yeah, I, I did um, have an affinity with some people um, and... Um, I would say that if I met them today, I would say they're friends. Yeah. I'm not hanging around with anyone. I don't know anyone. Which um, is a really weird concept in itself because you've spent some – there's probably people that you spent your whole tenure with. Like there were people in there from beginning to end. Yeah. And you may never see those people fucking ever again. Yeah. Which is like another harsh reality because it's like the whole Shawshank thing where it's like that's your – you know, because it was you were almost in there as long as – You've been alive world. up until the, you know what I mean? Like you're, you're, you're nearly your, yeah, most of your young adult life was spent in that area. And to think that you would have made some amazingly close connections and you would have had that one bloke, you know what I mean? That was your mate and every day you'd fucking sit down and have dinner with him or lunch or you'd work out, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you'll never see those, you may never see those people again. No, and I was only thinking about that in the last couple of weeks as well because for a period of time um, I was at one prison and there was a number of individuals in there, only a small group, probably about 10 people, and um, you wouldn't find these people. Like, how would these 10 individuals meet at this one place, converge there with that sort of work ethic, that sort of wisdom in their mind's eye? Yeah, they're all behind bars but people capable of great things in the community, like with true potential. But for that many to be in the one place, I've never seen that. And sometimes I wonder where those people those are to are. this yeah. day. And I, and I, you know, I have heard that one has passed away and um, some aren't faring so well, but I believe that some are doing great. And that must be, there's all like an element of, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, when I get out, I'll give you a call. Oh, what's your phone number? Oh, I don't have a phone. Oh, well, like, wh- how do I get in contact? Well, I don't fucking know. Like, well, I don't know what my next move is. Yeah. Like, you know it, it's I mean? it's literally like being born again. Like, you've just got to come back out and start all over again, don't yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. I remember um, I was walking across roads and I had no 
comprehension of speed of vehicles and they got hit yeah so talk talk us through like that was sort of where i was going with these questions like you know your parole date came up like you were saying parole never happens the first time were you, did you set yourself up mentally because you knew that that wouldn't happen or did you have some sort of hope to think fuck i could get out here yeah no i believed i believed because i knew myself um how i'm being weighed up is you know their prerogative yeah or you know their role but i believe that you know you're what I'd learned is, you know, you always have a go and that, yeah. I In your heart of hearts, you're like, fuck, I'm a very good chance of getting out here because I know I'm reformed. Yeah. Yeah. So how hard was it to get a no and another two years in there? Was right. it as hard as the beginning? Um, in a way, it was actually a good thing. Okay. It was actually a good thing um, because I went back and reviewed everything that I'd done. And at that point, because I was a peer support worker, like an inmate counsellor, um, I would get notifications off the psychologists um like every monday they would say okay tuesday i need you to help this inmate type up his parole letter um on friday i need you to go to the clinic to talk to this person that's on obs you know suicide watch um so i had all these jobs to do each week in amongst my work and activities um um that actually helped me i got knocked back but in helping them i reviewed all my own um, application and expanded on it and I I basically did all these different plans um, almost like educational plans from scratch and went to great depth at them wow and um, that's cool yeah so when I hit second time around you presented I, that to them yeah, yeah and I was and um, at, at the end of the process it was extended and then they wanted more information so I went back and I did more education and more plans and then it went through again, and then it looked like... Yep. I honestly believed, a week before I'd heard, I was walking around a tennis court having a cup of tea, and I just believed that I was getting out, and I was going to be free. And people were coming up to me and saying, you got it, didn't you? You got it, you're going. I'm like, no, I haven't heard a thing. But I was shining, and I believed that I was going. Yeah, wow. So it really is... Geez, that must be a fucking wild feeling. Yeah, oh. but from what it sounds like to me, like it truly is an example of um, rehabilitation. Like it's by the effort that it sounds like you've gone to and the role that you then played as a peer support worker and finding that sense of purpose, you know, in that world, it really does sound truly like a transform, like a complete transform, a yeah. transformative process. And do people have a, a level of respect in how, like, other inmates like a level of respect for what you'd done yeah and um for the most part yes but some people know some people again hate what you're doing yeah they yeah, hate yeah. What you stand but they're the for. people that will never reform because they can't accept what they've done right that's and, and, it, and, and nothing can change until you can accept you fucked up yeah and they don't want to see other people succeed Absolutely. In an well it's the same yeah. thing as real life anyway yeah it's just a it's just in a different yeah different area so talk us through the day you got out Oh, what I, did that look like? The day I got out, my godfather who got in touch with me after my dad passed away, he was um, a miner, an under-manager, an electrician, and he got in touch with me and he went to my dad's funeral and he promised my dad that he would get in touch with me. He came and visited me for a few times and he was the one that came to pick me up with um, my godmother. Um, when the it was, it was so weird, but a couple of days before I was released, there was an incident in the prison, so the prison was locked down. So I didn't have to walk around and say goodbye or deal with any of this stuff. I could just work on myself. 
So the morning I got out, I packed up three boxes, put them on a trolley and wheeled them up. Some people were banging on doors and windows trying to wave to me in this, but I didn't want to turn back. I didn't want to look back and I didn't look back. I walked up to the top and the officers, the guards, made me a coffee. I drunk that down. Then they walked me up and I signed a bit of paper. They gave me three sheets of paper, took me into an airlock, a vehicle airlock, and the roller door came up. And there I was free. I couldn't believe it. Fuck. That must have... And were they giving you stuff that you'd given, like that you had to hand in, like sixteen and a half years? Yeah. Before? What, you, what did you wear? Um, um, some Christian friends from Sydney actually sent me up some clothes because I wound up being in contact with quite a few people, and they bought me some brand new Nike shoes and shorts and a shirt. Fresh set of Nike. Yeah, yeah. They sent that to me. Step it out in yeah, style. Yeah, they sent that to me, and um, oh man, and and I walked out there into the car park, and then Gary and Debbie came around, and um, I couldn't believe it. We walked over to the car, and then I just broke down. I couldn't move. I was crying. I was pretty upset. They were crying. Fuck. I'm fucking emotional. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's, I can't imagine the... Um, and yeah, back to full circle where we started about oh. having a fucking teary. Like, that shit just comes out of you. Like, oh, man, to think that hell was literally over, even though it was quite positive in the end, mm. um, hell for me was over. And I was out there and I was free. And it was amazing. I just could not believe that I'd gotten there. And it was like that the... The amount of time went like in the blink of an eye. It was so crazy. And you were you were forty when you came. Were you forty? Thirty nine. Fuck! You went in there as a twenty two year old and you came out thirty nine. Far out. That is just so yeah. hard to comprehend. It's so hard to comprehend, isn't it? Yeah, it's fucking insane. Um, I um, you said that you found. Um, you turned to God at a point in time when you're inside as well, because you just you mentioned that, and I feel like we might have missed that part of that time inside, uh, because you did mention that you know some Christian friends of yours sent some clothes and and that kind of stuff. Yeah, would I? Um, I was a Christian when I was a young fella. I was a member of the boys' brigade and stuff. We used to wear uniforms and go play sport and do all this stuff. But I never really i'm not from a christian family or i don't have a church background but mm. i just knew christian people were good people you know they were non-judgmental and helping me and um they they were they were the people in the end that supported me pretty much through the whole thing mm. that's where i learned to play guitar in prison and write songs and and do all that stuff and Wow, and so what do you do on the day that you get out? Like, what do you what like what do you actually do? Did you go you get like Maccas or something? Yeah, no. <laughs> like, like no, I had no idea. He um, they drove me um, went to the shops and they bought a chicken and some coleslaw and some rolls, and then we went back to their home and um, there was my bag with my clothes and stuff from that long ago. It was like going through a uh, time, time capsule. It was unbelievable. But was that? Did you? Why was that bag there? Did you bring it from? Yeah, I carried it out. You with carried me. it out. You had your bag, but you hadn't been through it. You just carried it out, and it yeah. was there. Yeah, and things that people had sent me while I was in there, like letters and things that I weren't allowed to have, and oh, yeah, really? Little things. Not yeah. allowed to have let like letters. Oh, some some things are like laminated photographs. Some things you can't have. Oh, right. And things like that. Yeah. So was it? Did it sort of? And it probably wasn't like this, but did it sort of feel like 
it was the day it was the day after you went in. Did it feel like like you went in there at twenty two and it felt like a like it had been a day and now you were back and you'd start you were back where you were. Does that make sense? It seems it seemed like that because the intensity of it, um, you know, just the emotional ordeal that you've been through for such a long period of time it's hard to fathom what you've actually seen and experienced and um and even when i think back you know um it was it was a tough journey and it's a hard journey and you have to self-motivate you have to believe or you'll be lost in the cracks Mm. get bowled over and you'll vanish um, the good that I did in there, no one can ever take away from me. I've saved lives. The amount of good work that I've done. I got letters from people's aunties. I know that I've saved guards from the most violent attacks, if not worse, um, inmates as well. Um, just being a positive um, person in someone's depression or what they're going through has helped them. Um, bereavement counselling that I did for individuals in there. Um, I'll never know the full extent of the good work that I did, but I believe and know that I've helped a lot of people remain alive. Which is, mate, it's a feather in your cap, and it's something that you know you can hold. Yeah, you can hold on to that and, and, and know that you've made that positive impact after the, the you know the stuff that you've done. Yeah. Just fucking and that's great. and the thing is, is like people never will know. Really, like people will never know that. Like I will never know. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. we weren't there. You were there. Um, and I guess the, the the good thing is it it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. Like no one has to know as no. long as you know in your heart of yeah. hearts the good that you've done yeah. and the 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 genuine sort of attitude to helping and reform and this kind of stuff. That's probably laid a foundation for you to excel in you know your new life outside of prison, which is decades apart. Yeah, yeah. and I mean that's the other thing. I mean like. The, the world changed in that amount of time a lot. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking, fuck, 97. I'm thinking... 97, internet wasn't even really a thing in 97. 2000, we had the Y2K bug that was going to take down fucking everything. Yeah. Um, you know, and from that point on, Sydney Olympics. Um, yeah. yeah, great time. September 11, fucking <laughs> iPhones, like, yeah. technology. You know, you must have just come out. And you, I guess you see this from inside prison. Yeah, did you know about all this other stuff? Like yeah, you got TVs and yeah, stuff. Yeah, t- TVs. I remember waking up one morning and seeing 9-11 and I was in shock. I was traumatised seeing that on the television. I remember that one. Um, I watched the Olympics on television and most other things because you can get newspapers and you do have televisions. Um, I think everyone gets televisions now, but... Um, you would have seen the bloody uh, the Benji Marshall flick pass in the 2005 Grand Final. Yeah, Tigers. I saw that. And I've seen the Dragons <laughs> win in 2010, I think it was. Yeah, and I was like, I think And was, I'm yeah. like, yes. Yeah, Dragons, man, are you? Yeah. Tough day for you blokes yesterday. Oh, I can't hell. believe it. Um, the quarantine <laughs> drama. And, what a show that was. Oh, give me 300 grand a year. I'll be a good boy. Yes, coach. <laughs> what do you want me to do? I'll be home. Well, how hard was it for you, you know, with all those changes that happened in the world while you're incarcerated, how hard was it for you to come back into society with all those changes that had happened and for you to accept the world had changed dramatically in 17 years? Um, reintegration um, has been very difficult. I was told it would be hard and I said, no, it'll be fine. I've been through worse. But, um, no, it's very challenging. Um, um, I, like, I found this 
phraseology that I say, I'm like societally displaced. And um, it, I, what I mean by that is um, why people of my age, age cohort have been out there in careers and have, um, you know, they've had a stable income and they've got super and they've been married and they've had kids. I'm like, here I am. I don't have any of this. And now, you know, I've been out eight years and um, I'm 47 now and, um, you know, I have met a lovely lady and um, she's the same age as me and we won't have, I won't have kids, but that's okay because her kids can be my kids. Um, any kid in society can be my kid. I can care about them. I can, you know what I mean? And that's yeah, the yeah. way I've weighed it all up that um, a good person in society, um, everyone younger than you is like your, ch- your daughter or your son or older than you, your father or your mother. And that's the way I view things. That's a that's a really awesome perspective. Perspective, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Because I mean, I suppose what you're saying is that everyone in society has a responsibility to care for and look out for those around them when they have the opportunity to do so. Yeah, I suppose, and I suppose finding your place in the world again—it's probably not over. You still, still are finding your way along. Oh, right? absolutely! Like I've nearly found like I can find jobs all day long, but I'm trying to find an industry that. I can fit into and that I can develop and progress into. And um, I um, I found that about 12 months ago but lost it. And then I recently near found another one but didn't get that position either. So I just have to keep believing that a door will open for me and it's not easy because I believe I'm like burning daylight in the workforce um, because of the age of me now, you know. But I've still got fresh eyes and I'm still a hard worker but... Um, you know, to be 47 and going onto a jackhammer, it's not going to work. But, mate, that's probably not where your 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 true strengths lie now. Do you know what I mean? Because, yeah. I mean, what they reckon it takes 10 years to become an expert at anything and you've spent 17 years. Uh, probably a good part of that was finding yourself. But then probably once you sort of found yourself inside, you've spent a large amount of time honing a different kind of craft. Um, and that's probably one of, like you talk about, that caring for other people, bit of mentoring, bit of, you know, sort of looking out, protecting that kind of stuff. And so, you know, that's probably where your future lies because you don't go through an experience like that and come out as sort of enlightened as what you are for nothing. Do you know what I mean? And I think you probably know that as well. Yeah, I absolutely um, believe that. And um, I've been mulling over some things and um, I'd like to go in the direction of like workforce mentoring, like performance coaching. Um, I don't need to tell everyone my story, but I can tell them the insights and, and you know, help people in that way. Um, you know, obviously, you know, we're passionate about people, you know, self-harming. We don't want that to happen, but we, we're also passionate about the full the full sphere of the whole thing and we're talking domestic violence we're talking um sedentary lifestyle we're, we're trying to help people to become whole here mm. and um then they're that's going to benefit all of us and definitely themselves absolutely i want to uh you know we talked a little bit before you know about your you know religious beliefs and you know that you're a christian walk us through that because like how much of an impact has that had on shaping who you are now when I was in Capricornia and my brother passed away, that could have gone either way at that point. Um, I was so upset and I was so angry um, being in that place, not being able to share and at least get some empathy from the people that were nearest to me. 
Um, I just felt that because I've been reading my Bible and talking to chaplains, and I just believe that I had to. Um, this is in the Bible. It says, "You know, walk in the Spirit. You must live in the Spirit." I'm like, "What does that mean?" I'm like, "Well, it just means that you have to become better than your own, I suppose, thoughts. What you think's right, what you think's wrong. What is true here? You know what I mean? You know, there's like two sides to every, two, yeah. two sides to every story, and then there's the truth. I thought, well, you just got to go with the truth, walk in the Spirit. And what I meant by that was no matter what situation was coming at me, I wouldn't respond in, I suppose, a physical sense with negativity, whether it was verbal or definitely physical. But that's how I started overcoming. That's how I really started moving forward because I believed that God was going to open doors. I believed that there was a force bigger than myself. Once I believed in that, my problems here didn't really seem that big anymore. And then I met other people in there that were thinking and, and um, walking that journey out too. And that's that in an environment like that, I believe that that was, I suppose, the winning edge, you could say. And it's a guiding light and something that... I, we've talked about it before on this podcast. It's sort of like the, the, the religious... The element about religion that seems to make the most impact for people is that you're not at the top of the tree. Yeah. You know? And that's like, I think that's... Well, that's how I view it anyway. It's like when you're not putting yourself at the top, then you're, you've got someone to answer to that's bigger than yourself. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and prayer. Like, I mean, when you, when, you haven't got, when you think you haven't got a life or it doesn't look like you've got a life, to, you know, to pray and believe someone's hearing you. That's all I had. That's all I had in these cells. That's all I had for year after year is that. You know what I mean? And, and that for me was powerful, you know. When I, when I basically said, you've made these choices, this has happened, then I basically became a Christian, which means you give your heart to Jesus Christ and make him your Lord and Saviour. That to me was like the finishing and the start of me as a whole new person. And I'm not perfect, you know, no one ever will be. And I'll never be perfect and I can't change the past. But at least from today, even here to whatever else I do for the rest of my day, I can still believe that I'm trying to be the best and that's what's working for me. And make, yeah, make positive change and be be a better person, I suppose. Absolutely, right? yeah. Which is fucking cool. And having a belief in the bigger picture, like having just that belief, and I suppose that's one of the big things that you hang on to with the, you know, on the religious side of things, is just a belief that there is a bigger picture. Yeah. And that there, you know, that there is more for you out there and that, you know, the path that you are on may or may not be predetermined, but, you know, it's, it's it's you know, with that power of belief, you know, that there is more for you. You yeah. can almost create that future. Absolutely, I feel that. Mm. I feel that even coming in here and talking to you this morning, you know, like we've touched on so many different things and, um, yeah, I believe it. But that's not the end of the story. <laughs> not at all. Because. <laughs> not at all. Because uh, they threw you back inside. Yeah, they threw me back inside. So, talk, yeah. <laughs> let's go through that. Well, I thought it was all over and... Um, there I was in far north Queensland, um, working in the shutdowns. So time wise, timeline wise, so you're out in 2015. The roller door opened. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and um, I um, was working um, labour hire contracting in Brisbane for every company under the sun in Brisbane. I've worked on Gateway Upgrade Grade North, Qantas Hangar Two refit, 
Um, I've worked at South Bank. I've worked in all the CBD high rises for various companies, Ipswich Motorway. Um, I've been a stevedore at the Port of Brisbane, a wharfie. I've worked on Spitzer tugboat sh- shutdowns here. Um, done all this stuff trying to land a permanent job. And then I thought, you know, it's not working out for me here. Let's go North Queensland and give mining a crack. And got shutdowns at Hay Point, out on the water there on Shiploader 1, Shiploader 2. And so I'm thinking, I'm out here earning good money, but let's try and get a permanent mine job in production. where Because, you know, that's what I was trying to do, get into where I could be a part of digging the coal out, whether underground or above. So I got a traineeship as a technician, um, reliability technician, I was meant to start on the Monday. I'd waited at least two months to start and it had hit the hip pocket hard because I'd been waiting, but the benefits of this job long-term were massive. And I heard a knock at the door. So this is on the Friday, just before the Monday. So I've gone out and I've seen two plainclothes individuals there who I immediately recognised <laughs> as detectives. <laughs> Gentlemen. And I said, um, good morning. Do you to what do I owe the pleasure? Yeah, I said, do you need access to the property? Is there something wrong down here? Is something – and I've gone out there and he's just pulled out from his back pocket a piece of paper. And he goes, are you Stuart Whitby? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, we got a warrant for your extradition to New South Wales. And I near passed out. I must have been three shades of green and purple because I literally had to hold on to the couch when I went back inside. What was the warrant for? Um, it was a fail to appear and, a, um, and an accessory before the fact of uh, offence when I was, I can't even remember how old I was, maybe 18. Fuck. And um, I could not believe H- it. And how long did they put you back in for? Eight months through COVID. <sighs> I thought it was the end of the world. I arrived in Sydney with the bushfires and all Sydney was all smoked out. This was last year. Yeah. Yeah. So you did so fucking hell. So you did your seven you did your sixteen years and nine months, which were fucked. Yep. You got out, you finally landed a permanent job. Well, we was on the path to, yeah. yeah. That's what I mean, like you're yeah. all but. Yeah. And then they lock you away for eight months. Now, that eight months must have felt just about as long as those 16, 16 years, right? Like it would have been awful. Well, I was in the watch house and um, up north and um, I was talking to the duty lawyer and stuff and they said, if you challenge this, you'll go into custody in Queensland again. It could be drawn out. You could wind up here for months. Um, and I just thought, you know what, stuff it. I'll go to New South. I'll sort it out. It looks like it's inevitable. The judge actually seemed in favour of me. He didn't appreciate what it was happening What a here. fuck around it. Yeah, he, he was not happy about what was happening with me, but he knew it was a legal warrant and he expressed such things. And um, they had a couple of typos even on their document and he made them go away and fix it and come back the next day. So um, I knew he wasn't happy about it and I definitely wasn't happy about it. So <laughs> God, I wouldn't imagine. <laughs> but what was the ex- – sorry, the expectation – like how long did you think you were going away for? Um. I actually thought I was going to go to Sydney and I'd be out within a day, two days. Right. Because okay. um, this is what I believe. Because it was a nothing sort of a thing, right? Yeah, and um, I'd contacted New South Wales about this matter while I was in custody in Queensland and because of the longevity in Queensland and um, New South Wales said, well, we don't want you 
and um, but apparently there was a warrant that it was <laughs> circulating, circulating. So to think that they'd pick that up and be like, "Let's go fucking nab this bloke." I wonder how they got a hold. How did they know you were there? Well, I don't know why they didn't get me the day I was released in Queensland. It oh, imagine a whole lot better. Oh, oh imagine worse, but better. Fuck. Yeah, maybe I could have dealt with it at the time. I don't know, but oh, and obviously there's no like, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they're not just going to be like, oh, they're not going to call up Queensland like from Sydney and be like, oh, that just keep that Whitby in there for an extra eight months for us, can you? Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, while you're already, yeah, fuck. That just insane. doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like, I mean, I'm not a fucking legal person, but it doesn't make <laughs> a whole lot. Am aren't you? <laughs> no, but it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? To be like, you got to do an eight extra eight months for this other thing. It's just like, fuck. Well, it, what it, more do you want from me? It wound up being eight months because the border was closed. And and courts. Oh, you couldn't get back. Yeah, yeah, right. Because of the COVID thing, so um, they flew me from um up north to Brisbane, handcuffs, and then from Brisbane direct flight to Sydney. And I remember flying into Sydney Harbour, thinking over the last few years I'd love to go back there for a holiday and just see something nice. And there's the Harbour Bridge, and there's the Opera House. And and, you're in handcuffs, and I'm in handcuffs, and mate, yeah. what? And so, um, okay, fuck. What's it like travelling in handcuffs? Well, everyone looks at you. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, what's, <laughs> it's like, what, like, what, like, it's not comfortable. No, it's no. Not oh, comfortable. Yeah, obviously, but I want to know the day. Like, the, obviously, it's not comfortable, but fuck. You yeah. know what I mean? They or probably that, just wrap a, bl- they wrap a blanket over your hands, don't they? No, no, no. I just had the cuffs there, and everyone that walks on the plane and off the plane has another look at you. That's like, yeah, like you, you know, feel like probably like a fucking dog. Yeah, and I had to get up and go to the toilet and shuffle along with handcuffs on, and you'd be no chance of fucking getting the fucking life jacket over your head and blowing oh. the fucking whistle for extra inflation. Oh, you'd be in trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so where did you do your eight months? Well, I first went to Silverwater. Yeah, right and, and um, wow, that was tough. Gee, Silverwater sounds like a really bougie fucking. Like no, a, it's not. I know, but it sounds isn't it silver water. It's definitely like not. A, <laughs> it sounds great. It sounds like a nice. Don't be fooled. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Residential don't be area. Fooled. Yeah, it's a, it's a rough place. Is and, it rougher uh, than Capricornia? Oh, absolutely. It's wow. um, it's it, it's crazy. Silver water. Was that where Chopper was? Is it silver water? Oh, I couldn't tell you because I'm trying to think of that underbelly series. But anyway, I um, yeah, so it was tough. So silver water. Why was it so tough? Um, just because it's the. Major remand centre, reception centre. Everyone's coming off drugs. Oh, it's remand. And it's all divvied up because they're gangs. This group here, that group there, this ethnicity here, that kind of people there. So it's just... And so where did they throw you? um, I wound up in um, 13 unit down the back and it was was probably the toughest unit there, one of the toughest units there. And your um, 17 years sort of prior or that you've done that... Does that matter? Like, is there any sort of... No, and that's the funny thing, because I felt that within myself. So walking around there and being... A nobody again. Yeah, I felt like that. But people were looking at me and sort of, you know, thinking and assuming that I was someone that once again, you know, because I... I suppose I immediately adopted. Well, you know the how it rolls. You yeah. know exactly what to do and yeah. how what not to do, and you know how it all works. So I quickly fell back into that role and started training every day. And then me doing push-ups down the end of the yard. In the end, there was like eight of us doing push-ups every day, and then other people were just flocking to me. You started the push-up, yeah, gang, and, and packed the church out yeah, within right. a week. Oh, really? 
Yeah, there was not one spare seat in there. Oh, so they were just drawn to you? Yeah, I said to everyone there, you're coming to church this Sunday? It's great, let's get out of it. So do you preach and stuff, do you? Um, look, I have at times, but no, I'm not preaching in a church or anything. And, yeah. um, I haven't had the opportunity to share my faith really in recent times, but I've spoken in a couple of churches and they yeah. know, went down pretty good. They were. It must be a pretty powerful sort of a feeling for you, you know, to, to go back in there like that, not you know, fuck, drop your lip and be like, fuck, poor me again. But you're like, righto, I can help people in here now for eight months while I'm away yeah. and sort of make a really positive impact, mate. That's like a fucking powerful thing to do. I had a, um, an Afghanistan war veteran, an Aussie, come straight up to me and start sharing his problems. And um, I got him training with me and I believe counselling him helped him yeah. through that time and also some other individuals. A young fella from the UK wound up and come unstuck. Um, you know, getting him training and then coming to church gave him some routine quickly and just things like this. Yeah, right. And so that in that eight-month period, you just trained your ass off. You had a positive impact on those around you. Did that time go, I mean, obviously it didn't go quickly, but... Yeah, it went in the blink of an eye. Um, Weight-wise, I lost like 20 kilo. Training again, just went straight. In a good in. way? Yeah, in a yeah, good right way, on. in a good way, just training hard again and was lucky to have a girlfriend drive down there on three occasions and visit me, like drive the 10 hours to come and see me. Yeah, wow. And then you went, where did you go from Silverwater? Um, I went to um, Musclebrook, Musclebrook. Yeah, which right is right. a farm, a yeah, work right. farm, okay. and I was building demountable sort of offices, houses there. That, yeah, right. In, in terms of... Uh, prisons that probably sounds like you know farm prisons sound like the better end of the stick oh yeah everyone there was playing the game so to speak behaving pretty much and yeah. um you would have to be do something pretty reckless to come unstuck there so you've come out are you expecting this to happen again is there an expectation that they could rock up to your door at any time and lock you up again or do you feel like now no, it's done? no there's no expectation of that um i'm just um yeah just i suppose like I am employed at the moment, um, I've got an employment future, a job to go back to, but um, it's not the permanent thing. It's mm. not the be all end all of me, and I'm just hoping to crack it. Oh, you still, mate. You still, well, and this is because we should really touch on this life after prison because there's so many things to touch on, like um, you know reintegration back into society, that sort of stuff. But like your view, like how has your view of yourself changed for in in throughout your life? How, how has your view of who you are as a person changed in that time? Well, I've learned to forgive myself, you know, like I haven't made um, the right decisions at times, but I do forgive myself. Um, I don't make excuses for what I've done. You know, I don't, I don't water things down. Um, obviously, the stuff that I've been through, I can't really share with anyone. It's just too full on. You know what I mean? Like, so I don't really get the chance to really tell people what I've been through or experienced. As in full on for you to go through it again? Yeah. and Or and just the fact of the matter that it's such full on... For them to hear it. Yeah, yeah. both both sides, I guess, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think, I think more that side these days. Yeah. Because it would take a, a bit to rock me. But, um, yeah, I, th I think that. So I don't really get to talk. And um, if I do share at times, you know, I find that for the most part it's just taken as a grain of salt which I don't particularly like, but um, that's how people are, you know. Um, 
but not always, you know. I have got a small group of friends and I'm well respected and I well respect them and, um, you know, they say at the end of your life, you know, as you, if you can count some friends on just one hand then you've done really well. Well, that's how it is for me too. And are they friends that you had before you went before you went away? No, they're all new friends. New friends? Yeah. Okay, and so do you have anyone from your previous life that is still a friend now, an acquaintance or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um Two and family, I guess, as well. Yeah, two people that I went to primary school with way back in the day. I'm still friends with them. So, yeah, one's one's got a concrete business and the other one um, works in central Queensland. And, yeah, I, I still know them. So your life um, before you went away, your relationships, uh, so there's a couple of relationships that have remained. Um, obviously your family has, you know, changed and you've lost family in that time. So yeah. there's not... You haven't carried too much of that previous life through now, I suppose, have oh, you? No, not yeah. at all. I mean, um, I talk to my mum occasionally. I mean, I haven't had so much to, a lot to do with her for such a long time. She's like, you would say, estranged in a way. And um, my younger sister's the same. She's got her family and children and all them. But my younger brother and myself, we, we talk all the time. We communicate like weekly and encourage one another. And, um, has, has your mother f- like, f- like forgiven you or for what's happened? Like, does she wear any of that for what happened to you? Like, does she think that? Does she wear any of that? Um, no, she she um she doesn't believe that she really p- played any sort of negative part in anything, like verbally outside, but maybe on the inside, she thinks differently. But um, you know, she's my mum. I love her. Um, I always will. But um, I don't agree with the way I was treated as a child, as a kid, um, and that's just that's just the way that it is. Have you spoken to her about that stuff? Yeah, I had a chat to her about it a few years ago. I said, you know, like, why, you know, why did you let these things happen to me? And she goes, that didn't happen, and this didn't happen, and I'm like, you know, like. She, like, she's I'm, blocked it out. Yeah, like I'm pretty embarrassed and, and ashamed in a way, but it's not me that happened. But they sent me on my first day to high school in secondhand shoes and clothes when my dad was an underground coal miner. Like, like, how could you not? How could you not afford? He's probably making good money. How could you not fucking sort me out? Yeah, because they're, they're drinking and smoking and not uh, giving a shit about their kids. And I mean, when you complimented me on my boots when I come in. I'm like, all my shoes are top top of the line, and I think it's because of that. And, well, it's um, a nice set of boots. <laughs> yeah, I know. And, yeah, and um, they are. They're comfy. But um, I'm like, uh, yeah, it's just like I tried to say, you know, like Dad was working in the mines. Like, what excuse do you have? Like, even me just doing shutdowns. I could go up to my partner's kids and just go boom, boom, boom without even trying. Mm. But why? Mm. Yeah, but I guess – what you've been through, your perspective shift, and the other thing as well that comes up a lot about this idea of adulthood being a whole process of undoing or, or coming to terms with your childhood. Yeah. Most adults are just spending their life coming to terms with what the fuck happened in their childhood, and it's hard. Yeah. Because everyone's got it. Everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone I see out there, um, yeah, everyone's got a story to tell. Are you fear like are you sorry? No, no, you go. You just took a big inhale. No, I, was, I was ready to fire one <laughs> off. You, well, don't forget it. But are you? So I mean, obviously, we feel privileged that you felt comfortable 
to, to share your story with us. But you said you, you don't get an opportunity to tell it as much because it is confronting for a lot of people and that sort of stuff. But do you f- is there an element of fear in you that people will, will judge you for what you've done rather than the person that you are? Um, I kind of don't think of it along those lines. I think of it as um, I don't feel they appreciate the gravity of the stories that I tell them. And that, to me, is, you know, they're not superficial stories. You know, they are life and death battles. And, um, you know, if someone, you know, you should be able to discern if someone's telling you something pretty serious and important and be empath, you know, listen to them. You know, all of us is, you know, trying to help people or listening to someone. Um yeah, I just think it's important to listen and to listen properly, you know, not just pretend you're listening but to receive what you're hearing, you know. And um, Listen for the sake of listening rather than thinking about how you're going to respond, what you're going to say back to that. Yeah, and um, I, um, that's probably why I haven't, you know, you want to you talk about some things at times but... Well, you don't want that to define you, right? No, you don't not want at that, all. Yeah, so what do you want, like how, how do you want to be... I suppose remembered, or like, who do you want to like? Who do you want to be like when people are introducing you? Like, who is that person that you want to be introduced as? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, that's that's a very interesting question because um, my identity today is being like a person that's proactive and pro-social and a hard worker and move forward. And um, I find that to get the full benefit out of that would probably at some point be going into another industry altogether, another. I think, you know, like, fuck, not telling, giving you any career advice by any means, but you need to be working with people. Yeah, well, that's what, you know I, what I mean. That's what I learned about and that's what I studied. Yeah, so like you need depth. to be working among people and, like, being that person that's like, because, you know, like, fuck, I've had a couple of shitty weeks. Like, we've both had a couple of fucking shitty weeks. Yeah. But, like, this perspective of being able to, like, sit here and talk to you and hear the stuff that you've been through, I'm like, well, fuck. If you can work through that, fuck, we can work through what we've got to work through. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and that's a powerful thing. And not many people are able to possess and have that for other people. You know what I mean? Like, well, that's a of, strong thing. One of the massive things that I learned is um, – because some people have heard my story and go, oh, my goodness, man, you've been through fucking, fucking hell. hell. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I have. But look, your hell's your hell and your hell's your hell. And to an individual, that's all you know. So my story is no bigger than your story, nor bigger than your story. We've all got stories. We're all people. And that's why we all need to care and help one another. And... um and I think that's a that's another positive message that I'd like to get out there to anyone that's struggling with any type of issue. That um, you know, you know, we always say, oh, there's someone else always doing worse than us. You know, oh, you haven't got it so bad. Look at them. But your reality is your reality. Your pain is your pain. And I think we need to help people in that instance before we start throwing, you'll get over it and yeah. it's all good, you know, just brush it off and, you know, there's someone always worse than you, but there's not because it's you, it's your life. And yeah. you have to and you have to sit in that pain as well. Like you have to experience it for what it is, you know, and you can't compare pain. Like it's just you can't. There's no spectrum where 
pain or suffering can be compared. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting when you were talking about, you know, when you when you want to tell your story or when you want to talk about things and you feel like maybe there's not a level of sincerity sometimes, you know, if people don't truly understand what you've been through. And it did get me to thinking that, well, it's much like uh, war vets who can only share their stories, if at all, with other war vets. Yeah. Or, or coppers who um, are all mates with each other because that life, being a police officer, only other police officers can empathise with that. And same thing with the amount of time that you've done inside and the particular stories that you have, only other people who have experienced that can truly appreciate how, you know, the gravity of it. And I guess that's probably, you know, the hard part in challenging situations like that. It's about finding your community and finding those the support network around you who can get you and who you can show vulnerability with and who you can open up to. And I think that's probably important well, broadly in life in general, you know what I mean? It's about having that support network around you that you can be yourself around and you can show vulnerability and you can surround yourself with people who you do feel like give a shit. They, they give a shit about what you got to say, you know? Yep. Man, this has been a fucking good podcast. It's been an hour and 40 minutes though. That's good. <laughs> I had no idea how much time has gone. Gone then. Um, oh. Mate, yeah, like really... Uh, there's probably been two lot, like real there's been a couple of defining moments well for both Ed and I individually and collectively throughout this business um, I know the day I met Brad Pulisier who has been you know pretty big around our sort of part yep. that was a huge day for, uh, for, for me that was like a life changing kind of moment within this business yep. and I think that day where we met you and that experience that we had right in that moment was probably another one of those for us. Um, And there's no way we would be able to plan for meeting someone who I'll never forget. I did 17 big ones for murder. I can never get that out of my head. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. It's a, it's a changing moment and you know, we, we feel privileged to be able to, you know, have you in here to be able to share this story you know, understanding the sensitivity around, you know, yep. what has gone on in your life and that there are other people, you know, whose lives have been affected, but also you've your life has been affected and you've affected other people's lives within that. So the gravity of the entire experience is massive. And, you know, I'm proud that, you know, we can provide a platform where we can have this conversation and shine a light into those experiences because the work that we do with Burrell Prison and that little and that little part of our business, um, the mental health conversation, the idea around forgiveness, around forgiving yourself and forgiving others, seems yep. to be you know quite a common theme that keeps coming up, um, as well as the idea of you know changing perspective and growth. And no matter what you go through, or what you've been through, this this is possible for everyone. And that you know, despite everything that you go through, having a Aboriginal fella come up to you in prison and say you're young and that's why there's hope. But I mean, there's always hope, right? Yeah, there is always hope. No matter where you're at in your life, no matter your age, your gender, there is always hope. Just do not quit on yourself. And that's what I say to people. Tomorrow is a brand new day. Just like seasons change. Not one day is the same as the next. You have to believe that the situation you find yourself is in, no matter how bleak it might look, it will change. And that's 
you know, that's why I'm here today, to get a message out there, you know, and um, just don't give up on yourself, don't quit. There's good that you can do and we can all make our community and our country a safer place in doing so. And who doesn't want to do good things and, <laughs> and feel good and be happy and, you know, go to sleep at night and I help that person. Feel accomplished, did, yeah. Yeah, I, I did something great today. I guess there's a big insight there in the fact that, you know, helping other people really is, you know, the positive way forward. And you have done something great today, Stu, mate. Sharing that story, incredible. Really appreciate it. Dan's pointing. Wants got one a more book. Thing to say. Got a book. Yeah, you've got a book coming out. Got When's that coming out? Yeah, I've got a book coming out. I'm hoping to have it all wrapped up in about eight weeks from now. I'm calling it Crazy Hotel. I actually, um, <laughs> yeah. I didn't even pick the name. I saw it written, scratched into a cell wall. So, um, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Well, when it comes out, make sure, um, yeah, you let us know. Love to, to share that around. And, uh, yeah, I, thanks so much for everything today. I mean, it's, yeah, incredibly powerful for you to share that story with us. And, you know, thousands of people that will listen to this podcast. Um, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, really look forward to continuing our journey and becoming, you know, mates over, over the next few years. It's bloody awesome. Oh, it's a privilege to be here, um Ed and Dan and I'm very grateful and um, yeah you know I had to like keep myself in check there speaking about these things for a moment there you know I wanted to cry and so did I and let it all out <laughs> fuck it I still I still think I might cry yet but um as I said um you know freedom's what you make of it and mm. and you got to believe you know make a difference because that's the only legacy we have when it's all said and done. Absolutely. Thanks, mate. Really appreciate it. Good stuff, mate. Thank you. Oh, wow. Fuck. How was that? Yeah, it was good. If I stop, I'll die.